I'm Casey Candela, and this is Fordham Conversations. That's the sound of one of the oldest surviving instruments in America, the urban organ. It's located in a nondescript church in Manhattan's Nolita neighborhood. The organ was built in 1868 by Henry Urban. Its 2,500 pipes have produced music for tens of thousands of masses, weddings, and funerals in the 150 years it's been in operation. On this week's show, I'm talking with organist Jared Lomenzo and Monsignor Donald Sicano of Old St. Patrick's Basilica. I visited Jared in the organ loft and he showed me around. So I'm a little familiar with your background, but I was sure. wondering if you could just tell me, you know, how did you start to play piano? How did you become an engineer? Okay. <laughs> um, I started playing piano actually on a historic piano uh, we found in a barn. It was a Clementi piano from London about 1810. And uh, it didn't work very well, but that was my introduction to piano. And um, from about the time of age four on, I was taking lessons and... Uh, eventually, I was called during church one day to play uh, the keyboard, and uh, I started playing in church then, and I rapidly became <laughs> called upon to do other liturgies and services and accompany choirs, and I've been doing that all my life. Um, and my interest in organ sort of developed from that, too. I was accompanying a choir, and they were going to Rome, and I need to learn how to play an organ, so I learned fast, and um, that's how I started playing organ. And in my church, we didn't have a pipe organ. We had a Hammond organ, which isn't quite um, a pipe organ, an acoustic instrument, but it was fun to play, and I really wanted to play it. What's the difference? A Hammond organ has a, a speaker instead of an actual resonant pipe, okay? so. Um, it's a, sort of a forerunner to a synthesizer, you could say. Um, I enjoy playing Hammond, but it's a different beast. And um, anyway, the organist wouldn't let me play it, and that was when I really decided I was going to become an organist. But you didn't go to college for music. You went for engineering. How did that come about? Uh, well, a lot of organists have other interests, and I certainly uh, had a lot of interest in uh, historic automobiles and cars. I worked on old cars with my dad and uh, did a lot of tinkering, and I was always involved in, you know, trains and other things like that. And, um, you know, the, the pipe organ is a, an incredible piece of technology. It's technology that goes back, you know, hundreds, maybe even a couple thousand years. And um, I guess that's part of the attraction uh, of it for me. So, uh, yeah, so it was sort of natural to become an engineer. Um, I, I enjoy all of that, and I love being able to solve problems. And one of the joys I have about this instrument is I can go inside of it and fix it. You know, it's all mechanical, and you can see how it works. And it's a great teaching instrument because I can show all these kids, you know, what an organ's all about using these fairly um, old but uh, technologies, but also very instructive. So how did you get to start playing keys in New York City? Yeah, I, when I came to New York City, I was not intending to become an organist, but I just started playing in bands, um, and I played in the salsa band. You know, I was just sort of gigging around. Uh, I sort of, sort of gave up organ for a little while, and um, I was actually uh, doing some 
banking as an analyst, like a lot of my friends from college. And, uh, you know, nights and weekends, I was out there doing music, and I was going to church, and then they called upon me. It was sort of like how it started again. <laughs> you know, they called upon me to play, and then I got more and more into it, and then I really missed it. And uh, I found a teacher again and started studying, and, um, yeah, I was a music director in a couple parishes before I landed here. And when I came here, I had played in Germany and other places in Europe, and um, all the organs there are mechanical. So when I landed here, I found this mechanical instrument, and uh, it really spoke to me. And kept, the sounds were so captivating, and um, I really just, from the moment I pulled out the first stop, I realized what a special instrument it was. Okay, thank you. Um, what kind of condition was the organ in when you first arrived here? Basically, a lot of the stops said don't play, don't use, uh, taped over it. And uh, it wasn't really being used all that much, which was a shame. So I just started playing it and gradually fixing things here and there that I could get to. And uh, so that's basically... I've just been sort of keeping it running as best I can, uh, but there are certain things I cannot do that uh, require, you know, specialist expertise, and that's why we need to raise a lot of money to um, conserve the organ in the best way possible and also um, get it playing to where it is, where it should be. Right now it's about, you know, halfway there, maybe 30%. On, and during the winter time when the cracks expand and all the air escapes out of the wind chest, um, you know, it's 150 years of pollution in New York, wear and tear, uh, construction projects that have gone in, on in here. There's a lot of stuff this instrument's been through. And, uh, you know, it could be in a museum, but luckily we get to use it every weekend. And it's, it's just a beautiful work of art that I think almost everyone I encounter has an emotional response to, you know, the sound, its connection to history, uh, the people who built it, you know, there's a lot here to treasure. So let's talk about that history. Can you uh, give me an overview of how the organ was created, how it ended up here? Sure. Um, Henry Urban, the man who built the instrument, uh, and the immigrants and other people in his shop, they built this in 1868, but it was actually the third organ Henry Urban built for this space. So he built one uh, with his brother-in-law, Thomas Hall, in the 1820s, which was expanded in the 1840s. Then he put another one in for Archbishop Hughes in 1852. Then the church burned, and this was the organ in installed after that. And the interesting part is, as an organ builder, you usually don't get to build three organs for the same church. So I, I like to think this is his masterwork. He got it right. Everything that anyone complained about in, <laughs> in the 1852 instrument was addressed in this organ. You can see it. You can read the review, and then you see what he did. And it's this incredible uh, masterpiece of uh, organ building. And in New York City, which at the time was probably the... Um, well, expanding as rapidly as any city in the world, um, this was a big industry, and he was the head of it, and he was the preeminent organ builder, and his organs went all over the west, uh, this hemisphere, even to like uh, Latin America, Colombia, uh, and all the territories in the west. America was expanding, expanding, and every town needed churches, and in those churches were his organs. Um, 
Unfortunately, a lot of them are no longer with us, and instruments like this don't exist because the churches had money. You know, with the times and changes in tastes, they would take them out and replace them or remodel them into what they wanted. This organ, because the cathedral moved uptown, was preserved. And luckily, the people here appreciated it. I mean, it's clear. The fact that it's here and playing still is kind of miraculous, actually. But um, it is uh, just sort of a, a quirk of fate that it's here in the middle of New York, and now we get to enjoy it and share it and pass it on. So um, that's our goal. So on that note, um, the organ needs some maintenance. Um, what is the church doing to maintain it for future generations? An organ like this is made of inert materials, really. Um, you know, uh, it's wood, it's metal. It's not like a keyboard that, you know, you have to change every few years as sound samples get better. It is what it is. Um, so actually, there isn't a lot of maintenance that goes on. And actually, you know, just tuning it, I rarely tune it because the reeds are in such a state that it doesn't hold its tuning at this point. So really, we don't do that much. It's just here and there, I'll fix a tracker or screw something together or glue something that breaks because of low humidity conditions. Um, but other than that, it doesn't really require that much. Uh, it requires basically just a good environment, you know, uh, humidity, like, you know, 40% humidity, and some range of temperatures, um, you know, 65 to 80 degrees are fine. And that's all you need. I mean, it's something that will last centuries. But doesn't it need repairs? So, right, so our goal with the Friends of the Urban Organ is to create a community around this instrument and to preserve and conserve this instrument. So right now, there are cracks in the wind chest that let air out. Is that like the lungs of the, of the organ? Yeah, so the lungs of the organ are the bellows. And uh, we have these enormous bellows. Uh, they're called triple rise bellows. They're very complicated to make. Um, and those are the lungs of the instrument. And those are planks of wood held together in between by leather and the leather in some places is 150 years old you know so you can imagine what happens with 150 year old leather. Um, same thing with the pallets and these wind chests that hold this pressurized air. Uh, so we have a number of issues we have to address with all that and the only way to fix that is to unfortunately take the instrument apart. The instrument also needs to be cleaned. Um, there's just an incredible amount of dirt in the pipes and, you know, certain times when construction was done, it wasn't covered. Um, so the pipes are extremely dirty. Um, and also there are a lot of mechanical things in the instrument that need to be addressed. Um, these are called stickers, but they're just long pieces of wood that couple things together in the organ. Those are all out of whack. So it's a it's a bit challenging to play around all these deficiencies, but for the most part, people don't realize <laughs> what condition it's in because it just sounds so beautiful, you know? So part of our goal is to educate people about the organ, let them know what is wrong with it, and um, then go on and raise the money to fix it. So, uh, and the goal would be to pass it on to my successors 
you know, in the future for centuries. I mean, it's an instrument that will last. It's an instrument that is really a national treasure at this point. I mean, there isn't one like it left. Great, thank you. So um, I want to hear what it sounds like. Great, let's do it. All right. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV. I'm Casey Candela. The organ you just heard is the urban organ at Old St. Patrick's Basilica in Lower Manhattan, played by organist Jared Lomenzo. Next, I'm talking with Monsignor Donald Sicano about the history of Old St. Pat's and Archbishop John Hughes, a 19th century Catholic who laid the cornerstone of St. Patrick's Cathedral, founded Fordham University, and earned the nickname Dagger John. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your position here at the church and what church life is like here at Old St. Pat's Basilica uh, today in, in 2017? Sure. Uh, well, my, my name is Monsignor Donald Sicano, and uh, I've been pastor here for 10 years now. Uh, and I am blessed and privileged to be in a neighborhood that has changed, has many faces, and many uh, uh, historical pages have turned over the 200 years that the church has been in existence. And so I'm uh, at the uh, point where uh, we are adjusting to a whole new uh, population of people that are uh, coming to our church and very excited about that and um, energized by them, uh, particularly your age group actually, uh, people in their 20s and 30s that are, are coming here in larger and larger numbers. Wonderful. and. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the history of the church itself, when it was founded, by who, uh, what the neighborhood was like in the past 200 years? Sure. Well, uh, if you can picture it, uh, 1808, okay, when New York City was a very small, insignificant uh, uh, city, barely a town, really, uh, it fared not well in the American Revolution. And actually, in 1800, there were only... 75,000 people that lived in the city of New York. In 1900, just 100 years later, 5 million. Wow. So in just 100 years, the, the city grew in great proportion, five boroughs, you know, a burgeoning and energetic city. Uh, and uh, it was recognized, of course, very early by Rome, uh, uh, the Pope, uh, made uh, New York a diocese in 1809. Um, and actually 1808. And uh, as it is, uh, every diocese has its own cathedral. So the pastor of St. Peter's Church, a man by the name of Anthony Coleman S.J., he was a Jesuit, okay? So uh, he was in charge of the diocese and he decided that he would build the first cathedral uh, here at the corner of Prince and Mott and Mulberry. It took him 15 years to do it, but he did it. And in 1815, the church opened up. 
Wonderful. Well, it's a beautiful church. Um, so what was the population that the church served when it first opened up, and how did that change? It was, you know, it was, it was a mixed population back then. Uh, this is now the early 19th century, 1820s. Uh, this is before the great waves of immigration came. But New York was always sort of a heterogeneous, polygot sort of a mixture of people just because of its location and its port city. Uh, but I suppose if you were to say that there was a predominant um, ethnic character to that early population, you would say it's Irish. But they didn't really come in the great numbers until the great hunger, you know, the famine in Ireland uh, later in the 1840s. Okay, and um, so let's shift our focus a little bit to talk about Archbishop John Hughes. Can you tell me um, a little bit about what kind of figure he was in New York? Well, he had a great reputation as a visionary. He was a person who could slice through a problem and, and solve it. He was a virulent advocate of the immigrant, of which now the city was receiving in vast numbers. He was, by the way, and I think this is important to mention these days, he, he was um, an ambassador for President Lincoln informally uh, to intercede in the Catholic nations in Europe to stay out of the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. So there was a real interest in, in Europe at that time uh, to favor the Confederacy because of the economics of the cotton trade. And, uh, so actually John Hughes went over to Europe to, uh, to defend the Union on behalf of uh, Abraham Lincoln. So we're very proud of that aspect of, of, of him. He founded the first parochial school system. Wow. So let's talk a little bit more about um, the parochial schools. Why was there a need for private Catholic schools in New York during the well, mid-1800s? Well, he felt that the public school system was, uh, was governed with a, a Protestant viewpoint. Um, and indeed it was. And it wasn't the public school that we know today. It was run by a so private, non-governmental agency. And um, uh, he felt that the pros proselytizing the Catholic immigrant was not in his favor. Uh, and so he established a way to socialize the immigrant into the church and into housing and into, into the economy. And so not only did he establish the uh, first parochial school right here at 32 Prince Street, but for the university. You know, so he had a vision to create a, a family of institutions you know, that would uh, uh, guide people, educate them, socialize them you know, into the American culture. And he was very successful at doing that and was recognized by that. So what made uh, Fordham at that time called St. John's College, what made it unique um, in its region and its, um, in its sphere? I think what made it unique was that it was um, a, a liberal arts uh, institution uh, that gave uh, the student, the, you know, the person that was processed through the school, a, an understanding of the world uh, that was helpful in their making good decisions for themselves. You know, so I think that it really prepared people uh, to do anything that they wanted to do. And it, it, it was a, a place for inspiration as well as 
gaining skills that would be obviously helpful to them in their uh, uh, livelihood, but it also inspired them with values that were uh, important to for happiness. Right. I mean, one of the one of the mottos is care of the whole person or cure a personalis is something you constantly, constantly hear at Fordham. Right. Um, but and another part that, that was Hughes's, you know, philosophy. Uh, and he tinkered at all aspects of the human experience. So you really can't pin him down to doing any one particular thing. You know, so some people are surprised that he was this ambassador, you know, for uh, for the union, uh, that he established the public school system, and that his nickname was Dagger John, you know, which uh, made him sort of uh, pugnacious and and truculent uh, in his nature. Actually, the 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 nickname Dagger John came to him because bishops sign their name with a cross after their their surname. So in his case, it would be John, no cross, Hughes. And the way the press picked that up uh, was, in the linotype days, was to use a little dagger when they, they printed out his name. So it was John Dagger Hughes. And so he, he got the nickname Dagger, Dagger John. Right. When I, when I came to the church here today, I noticed that there's a very tall brick wall surrounding the church. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it doesn't really seem that there'd be a need for that today, but perhaps there once, once was a need for that wall. Right. Well, I guess at the time it was to keep people out, at least uh, to keep people who were uh, planning to desecrate the church and the cemetery. Uh, we also have a catacombs below the church. So a lot of our uh, early... Uh, Catholic New Yorkers are buried here. Uh, so while there were people that were threatening to desecrate it and, and burn down the church, uh, the wall was built to keep them out. Uh, now we like to have people to come in. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, we try to get people in, in, in all sorts of ways. In fact, uh, later this week our famous sheep are coming. You know, we, we invite three sheep every year uh, to spend the summer with us. Uh, in this case, it's a little late, you know, they're coming this Saturday, uh, and they'll stay a month with us, and they'll graze in the cemetery and, you know, keep things growing there. And you can just <laughs> visit the sheep anytime you want. Yes, 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 indeed. And, and the neighborhood loves it, so they can look out their windows or, or peep through the gate uh, uh, peepholes and watch the sheep graze. The, the peepholes in the wall? Well, in the gate. Oh, okay. Yeah, All right. A couple of gates, and we have little people, and they're very popular. People like stopping and watching the, the sheep graze. <laughs> That's quite a marketing yeah. tactic. Yeah. Well, I think I think Archbishop Hughes would be kind of comfortable with it. Uh, in his day, it wouldn't have been uncommon to see sheep or chickens flying around. Uh, so it gives a little uh, touch of uh, originality to the to the premises. Right. So let's shift gears. Um, you know, the, my reason for coming here today primarily was to see your wonderful organ um, in Old St. Patrick's Basilica, which actually, before we move on to that, why is this called Old St. Patrick's Basilica? Why, what, why is it, you know, the old one versus there's a new St. Pat's that's perhaps a little bit more well-known uptown? Yes, um, this was the cathedral church uh, from the time it was uh, the actually when the cornerstone was laid in 1809 until 1879 uh, when the cathedral was moved from here to Fifth Avenue and 51st Street to a new cathedral 
that John Hughes built, or at least he started it. Uh, the word cathedral actually comes from a Greek word, cathedra, that means chair. So a lot of people think that it, a cathedral is a big church or an elaborate one, but actually it simply means where the bishop's chair is located. Okay, so the leader of the diocese has as a symbol his chair that he teaches from. And that chair was here from 1809 to 1879, 70 years of a very important time in the history of the nation, the city, and the church. When you think about it, in 1800, New York was 75,000 people. The United States was struggling, a bunch of states coming out of the American Revolution, and the church was meager. By 1900, the United States was a world power, the church was a major player, and the city of New York was five million people. That all happened in a very short time. And this church, St. Patrick's, was the cathedral then. From 1879 till now, there's a new cathedral where the chair is located. That makes this the old cathedral. But why move St. Patrick's uptown? I mean, it was called Hughes's Folly for a while by the press. Well, yeah, because it was so far out of, out of the city. You know, it was a, it was a, uh, a vision and a, uh, uh, a, a, a planned move on his part. Actually, when this church was built, the same complaint was made in 1809. People complained they had to come out of the city, which was way south of Canal at the time, you know, up muddy roads to consecrate the church here. Even in 1815, when it was finished, they were complaining that it's too far out of the city. Wow, and now St. Patrick's is in the thick of it, right in Midtown. Exactly. Couldn't ask for a more centrally located right. cathedral for or the here, city. For that matter. You know, we, we're located right in the kind of center of Manhattan, the lower part of it, and frankly, the more delightful part mm -hmm. of the city. <laughs> I think a lot of people would agree with me. Uh, well, it's a so, good thing they didn't put a highway through it that's right. when uh, Robert yeah. Moses was building. Yeah, that's right. You know that, right. That was, that was fortunate that they didn't do that. And it wraps itself around the FDR you know, on, on one side of the, the island and uh, the West Side Highway the other, but we don't have one that slices through Manhattan. Yeah. And we're very fortunate for that. Um, so let's talk about, you know, what's inside the church. Um, Old St. Patrick's Basilica is home to this wonderful historic organ that mm -hmm. um, is about to see its 150-year anniversary. Um, can you tell me, you know, as the Monsignor, what role does the organ play in the faith life of your community? Um, it, it, you know, I want to describe it in terms of, of sound waves. I know that sounds funny, but there isn't any sound like it. It, it reverberates in your bones. And when I was newly ordained, um, no, actually when I was first a pastor and I was 20 years ordained, I didn't appreciate the difference between a pipe organ and an electric organ. I just didn't know, right? Um, and this was the this church was the first time I've really been exposed to not only a pipe organ, but a, a unique and fabulous organ. There's no sound like it. And once you get used to it, once you it, it, no matter where you go, you know, and you listen to another instrument. You, you hearken back to this one. You, you, 
this is, this is it, this is the best. There are bigger ones. So the new cathedral has a bigger, monstrous cathedral, but it doesn't make this sweet sound. It's fabulous. So it's, it's airwaves. They, they go right into your bones and they stay there. It gives prayer wings and it helps waft it up to, up to, up to God. Um, the, the visuals of the church here are splendid uh, with windows that get the advantage of full sun because we don't have buildings in a historic district here. So we don't have buildings that block the sunlight that streams through the windows. And there are all these saints and figures you know, that uh, you imagine in the ethereal heaven. Uh, and so the organ music just creates this, this other, this alternative world um, that we yearn for, uh, the, the peaceable kingdom. You know, um, and so music helps do that along with the other senses that uh, join it. You know, the vision, the, the, the incense, um, all of that creates an ambiance that reminds you of who you are as a, a child, a son or daughter of God. I would like to thank my guests, Jared Lomenzo and Monsignor Sacano, and the Friends of the Urban Organ. I'd also like to thank my producer, Patrick Rusimano. You can follow Fordham Conversations on Facebook and Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. Before we go, I want to mention that the program you're listening to couldn't get made without your help. WFUV is member-supported, non-commercial public radio. We rely on your donations to help us produce these stories. To make a donation, visit us online at WFUV.org. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Casey Candela.